<laughs> well, it was the colors of the wedding. Anyway. No, 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 no. It's absolutely fine. All right, well, we're in church history here. And as we continue in finishing off the Age of Enlightenment before we get into the Age of Revolution, we got to kind of end this, this, this era by looking at some wake-up calls, some different things where people were suddenly being forced to think differently because of different changes in thinking. So, 1729. Jonathan Swift makes what he calls a modest proposal. You remember Jonathan Swift? Did all, anybody remember his name? He's an, uh, a, an English royalist who uh, his parents moved to Ireland uh, at, at, at one point and moved to Dublin, but he's from English stock. He just was born there and then he moved like right back in England. What? Okay, so he's so he's he's English royalist, born in Dublin, then very soon moved back to England and grew up there. So he's got a familiarity with Ireland, but he's definitely English. And he's an Anglican priest, probably best known as the author of Gulliver's Travels. That's right. That's right, man. It's a travelogue supposedly written by a guy named Lemuel Gulliver about his travels to fantastical lands. Um, what's interesting, that's interesting to me, maybe it's not interesting, it's interesting to me, is his great, great, great uncle was a guy named Francis Godwin who, who wrote one of the very first science fiction novels about a fantastical journey to the moon where he, a guy found this fantastical place. So you gotta go, he kind of comes by it naturally. It's like, well, there's a family inclination of an earlier priest writing about fantastical journeys. So he writes about this fantastical journey. And most people, when they think of Gulliver's Travels, they think of his time in Lilliput, right? This is like the mental image that most people have when they think of Gulliver's Travels, of these little people tying down the big guy, or him standing there being a giant talking to the king. Anybody, any of you ever read Gulliver's Travels? Okay, so you know, there's... I like the horse place. That's what I like. This is just the first quarter of the book, right? Yeah, the next place he goes, he's the tiny one. And everybody else is huge. And both places are the way that, that, uh, that Swift was trying to satirize Europe. To say, okay, you do realize we tend to think we're the end-all, be-all. We're the most influential, most important place on Earth. We're like the Lilliputians, who are these tiny little guys that say we're crucially important. And Gulliver's just like, oh, you you funny little people. No, you're, you're nowhere near as important as you think that you are. I'm from Europe. We're super important. And he goes to uh, Brogdon Mag, and, 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 and they go, oh, you silly little person. So this two-part, one-two punch is his way of going, really, Europe? Get over yourselves. You know, all these things that you seem to think are important, they're kind of ridiculous. But then, next place, he goes to a, a series of places, including the floating island of Laputa and the actual island of Japan. What else is he like, Goofy Island, Goofy Island, Goofy Island, Japan. In Japan, the Dutch demanded that he trample the crucifix to prove that he's not a papist. They're like, you got to prove that you're not some sort of, some sort of Catholic here. And he asked the Emperor of Japan if he could be excused from doing that. He's like, I, I find that distasteful. What does that remind you of? Do you remember this at all? Yeah, the plates. Yeah, the fumi. Remember these? This was an actual thing, wasn't it, in Japan? The, the emperor of Japan had, the, 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 uh, specifically the Tokugawa shogunate, had specifically set up these fumi 
these pictures of the cross, pictures of the saints, what have you, that, that Christians, the Krishitans, were supposed to step on to prove that they're not Christians, to prove that, they're, that they've renounced their faith. And he says, could I, could I not do that? But this is one of the first times we hear in Western literature about this, where we actually have somebody who goes, yeah, I've heard of this. And it's ironically not the emperor that asked him to do it. It's the Dutch. <laughs> the Dutch saying, I know, wacky. It's okay, they're going to sound better later on today. Anyway, my favorite, my favorite too, was the land of the Huidians. That's how you pronounce that. It's this race of intelligent horses, right? Which sounds just ridiculous. That's what makes it a satire. Satires are when you say things in such ridiculous ways that people might actually listen to the point you're trying to make. Because if I say, Christy, you're real messed up, Christy might go, that's just me. But if I say, you know, once upon a time there was a duck who did exactly what you do. And he's ridiculous. And you go, crazy duck. I'm like, and that's what you do. And you go, oh, I get it. Okay. Tell your horses. To them, Gulliver was just another Yahoo, which is what they call this, these kind of subhuman humans who were mindless, ridiculous. They did crazy things. They, they judged each other by you know, how much taller one was or how much uh, clothes that one slapped on himself or not. The horses are like, why do you even care about any of that kind of stuff? This is where we get the word Yahoo. This is where we get the word Yahoo. Um, as somebody who's just ridiculous, doesn't know anything. Um, the Yahoos were... Uh, were, were, were mindless and brainless. And, and Gulliver's like, no, 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 that's not the way humans are. Humans are not like that. We're fundamentally moral people. The horses are like, okay, how so? It's like, well, like, we wear clothes. Why do we wear clothes? Because we're covering ourselves, because we're moral. The horses are like, why do you need to cover yourselves if you're moral? If you're so moral that you want to cover the things that make you fall into sin when you see them, why do you fall into sin when you see them? You're not as moral as you think. All the stuff that you seem to think makes you a fundamentally moral individual, I say, I think you're a fundamentally immoral individual. Eventually, if you'll remember, you get to, if you've read it, you get to the end of it, and the, the Yahoos had this tendency to go digging around for shiny rocks in the mud. They love those shiny rocks. And, and, and the horses are like, I don't, you can't eat them. I don't understand what the, what the point is. And, and Gulliver realizes the shiny rocks are like diamonds and jewels and things. And they just, the, 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 the yahoos just hoard these things and say, look, I'm more important than you because I have more shiny rocks. And the horses are like, well, that's just insane. I have a bigger pile of shiny rocks than you do. Who cares? Who cares? And Gulliver's like, yeah, that's ridiculous. Ret- you realize I could, like, own a country if I brought back a handful of these things. And so one night he just goes to grab a few of these. He ends up having to fight with the yahoos because they try to take his shiny rocks away from him. Spends all night, gets himself all muddy. But he's got a whole pile of shiny rocks, and that's when the horses show up in the morning and look at him and go, Shh, Yahoo. You're just exactly like the rest of me. He's like, no, no, I'm not. No, yeah, yes, you are. This is a satire. The section of the book is not only where we get a... a, a, a uh, named for a search engine, but it's also where we get other later satires, like Planet of the Apes, which is very similar. This idea of going, you know what? It's these beasts there that are in charge, and the humans are like beasts. See what that's like? And, and you're supposed to watch this and not just say, ooh, sci-fi, or not just watch this and say, ah, nice ape makeup. But you're supposed to get to the end of the, of the movie and go, 
Oh, they were commenting on society. I get it. This is the way we treat one another. Get all that from Jonathan Swift. So 1729, Jonathan Swift suggests, he's, he's hot off the success of his Gulliver's Travels, he suggests that the British government is missing a huge opportunity in Ireland. The way that they're treating people in Ireland. If you remember, they're, they're, they're actually using starvation as a political weapon. He's like, no, instead of starving the Irish people, you should actually clothe them. You should feed them. You should take care of them. Because, he says, a young, healthy child, well-nursed, is at a year old, the most delicious, nourishing, wholesome food, whether you stew them, or you roast them, or you bake them, or you boil them. They're awesome. So just get them nice and flat and plump, and, and this will be great. You can just eat them. You're already treating them as subhumans, as cattle. You might as well get something out of it. Why starve your cattle? That's just dumb. This will work. And he goes on to list a whole bunch of reasons why this works, even for the Irish people. He's like, no, this is great. You get to take their kids so that they don't have to feed the kids, but everybody gets food, food so everybody's healthy, but then they don't have to try to feed their own kids because you're eating their kids. This is great. This works perfectly. Everybody gets happy by the end. Instead of wasting money, we, we invest it. That makes sense, doesn't it? What would your reaction have been if you read that? Why? It makes sense, doesn't it? What's horrific about it? What's wrong with that? Ever had veal? Human babies. But they're not human, they're Irish. They're not human, are they? If they're not human, this is a good idea. If they are human, it's horrific. But if they aren't human, it's, it's horrific. People all over England are like, this is horrible. Just ban this book. Because he's treating them like, like, like subhumans. How can he be so callous about the Irish people? So they totally missed the point of the book. Almost invariably. But then again, the first time that I read this in, in school, everybody else in my class was like, Jonathan Swift is sick. Why would he even say that people should do this? Really? You really think he means it this way? This is the guy that wrote Gulliver's Travels as one gigantic satire saying, y'all stupid. Really? You... Basically, Jonathan Swift, every time that somebody sat there and went, why, that's horrible. How could you treat them that way? Jonathan Swift is like, ching thank you. You've just proven my point. You cannot see the Irish people as subhuman. It's exactly like David and the Lamb. Isn't this horrible? Yes. Then what are you going to do about that? If they miss the point, then they just think that he's being crazy. Yes, but they think he's being crazy because you shouldn't treat the Irish like subhuman. And so increasingly, every time that somebody thought he was crazy and was saying something horrible, people, when they heard about some of the stuff going on in Ireland, would say, you know, we've got to treat them better. So actually, there were government reforms and things that came because of this. As people went, maybe we should do this differently. We, I think we're kind of treating them horribly. I didn't know when you said they missed the point. They like, actually... Well, that's the beauty of satire. They actually missed the point, didn't change their behavior. Oh, yeah. But that's the point of satire, is if, if, you, if you get the point, you go, oh, yeah, that's true. And if you don't get the, tri the point, it works even better. Because you find yourself just thinking that that makes more sense. Yeah, you're right. We shouldn't be like that. 
get Planet of the Apes. If you get the if you get the point that this is supposed to be social satire, you go, I get it. We mistreat people because we think that that different race is subhuman. I got it. That's what we were doing to African Americans. Yeah, I see. If you don't get the point, it even hits you even harder because you just realize people should be more humane. Oh, by the way, 1984, uh, the son of Francis Schaeffer, Frankie Schaeffer, wrote an updating of this book about a future dystopia where the government supports abortions and euthanasia in order to provide a food supply for an overpopulated world and to provide a steady stream of fetal tissue for uh, medical experiments. Can you picture a world where a government would support abortion and those abortions would actually be used for fetal tissue to help other people and that the government would think this is not only a good idea but moral for them to do it. When this came out, oh and ultimately, ultimately the government supports destroying the entire human race because that's the only thing we can do to fix the ecology of the world because the world is going to get sick of us messing it up. Funny that you mentioned that because I watched um, Blind Spot. It's a show on Monday nights. Okay. And I missed it Monday, but I watched it. I caught it yesterday. And uh, that's the whole thing is that there were these two people from the CDC who were like, we've got to spread these viruses like Ebola and stuff like that because the planet's overpopulated and this is why we have these diseases is for population control because the planet is going to get is mad at us for, for yeah that was exactly the whole reason they were going to go spread this disease and then be left stop well but this is essentially it's called so. the Gaia hypothesis that the that diseases like that are antibodies natural antibodies that the world has and we're parasites and the world's trying to write itself when this book came out liberals considered it so ridiculous and so pedantic that they're like it's not even worth commenting about they just go, um, actually we're seeing a lot of this kind of stuff, at least echoes of this kind of stuff now. I'm not trying to be alarmist as much as I'm saying everything that was ridiculous a generation ago is commonplace today, so, so often. So things that, you, things that people might say now, everybody goes, oh, that's just kooky. That won't happen. You know, really? Ask your kids when they're your age what, what they think about them. So it's this basic modest proposal concept of, Let's show a worst-case scenario and have people go, well, that's ridiculous. Well, hopefully that can stave it off. Sometimes, not so much. Anyway, 1730, the first Great Awakening began. We talked about this a little bit before. What's the Great Awakening? Okay. What? I started by... Uh, that's right, man. Probably I was doing all this great outreach and revivals. It's bursting out of revivals like Theodore's, Jacobus, Freiling Hoisen, 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 New Jersey, a, new, a big New Jersey revival started by him. There's that revival we talked about last week in Saxony with, that uh, Count Zinzendorf did with the with the Moravians. You got a whole bunch of new revivals of people saying, you know what, we ought to be taking this stuff seriously. Maybe we should be living this stuff out. So this Great Awakening focused on this emotional, and, and, and I, when I say that, I don't mean necessarily that everybody's screaming and pounding on their pulpits and things, though there were several of those in the Great Awakening, but this trying to inflame the, the, the passion. How do I get you to actually feel this, have a relationship with God? This emotional preaching that said, you, you've got to stop having a sleepy faith or a dead faith. 
You've got to wake up. You've got to revive. And you've got to do something with this. And you, the kind of preaching that you couldn't just sit there and listen to and go, huh, that makes some sense. No, the whole point of the Great Awakening is that you're, you hear this preaching and you go, I have to change. Which is exactly the opposite of what most preaching of the time was. Most preaching of the time droned on, was boring, and called you to intellectual assent to correct doctrine. Whatever that correct doctrine was for that church. So, you get this powerful emotional sermons by preachers like Jonathan Edwards, who was the king of not screaming and jumping up and down. Most of the time when people think of Jonathan Edwards, they go, fire and brimstone. You go, yes. Expressed very calmly. Which has made that all the more scary. Right? Because he's, he's expressing things intensely, calmly. So it's the sinners of the hands of the angry God that expressed calmly. Yep. That was this whole point. Very calm, very quiet. Edwards was this brilliant intellectual, goes to university at the age of 12. Which is really good, except I should clarify that most of the time they went to university around the age of like 14, 15. So think of it like high school, college kinds of stuff like we have. But still, he's going you know, a couple years earlier than most people would. But it's not like, well, six years ago. Uh, two years. But still. Goes to Yale at age 12. Interned at his grandfather's very wealthy, very influential church in Northampton. Later marries Sarah Pierpont, the daughter of the guy who founded Yale. Who the same Pierpont's that sired uh, Vice President Aaron Burr and John Pierpont, J.P. Morgan, later on. Crazy, crazy rich family, right? You're doing your homework. Pardon me? You're doing your homework. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I did, but so did Jonathan Edwards, because this guy is poised. You know, it's like, I went to the right school at the right time. I'm in the right church. I married somebody who's extremely rich of this powerful family. Oh yeah, it's on. So this is this guy is absolutely poised to be this important public figure. He's an ardent Calvinist. Ardent's not a strong enough word. I don't know if there's a word more than than ardent, but extremely Calvinist. Calvinist begins preaching a series of sermons on justification by faith alone. You're only only justified before God by the faith that He gives you. It's not by your works. It's not by how important you are. Which is interesting. It's not by who you're, 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 what family you're married into, what family you're born into, all your works. Nope. It's do you have faith that God gave you that you exercise? So he gave a sermon called "The Justice of God and the Damnation of Sinners," where he said, you know, it's just with God eternally to cast off and destroy sinners. God gets to destroy those who sin completely. It's just completely just and justifiable. He gets to do that. He created you. You chose to sin. It's on you, not on him. Because sin is absolutely horribly bad. It is horrifically bad. You seem to think it's not naughty. No. It is destructive, corrosive, toxic. And that's what you naturally choose because you have nothing but a corrosive and toxic nature. God gives faith to you so that you can make a choice to follow God. If he doesn't do that, then all you are is toxic and corrosive and destructive. That's it. That's all that's left in you. Therefore, God being totally sovereign, and the guy who created you, he has the legal and unquestionable right to throw you into hell. He gets to do that. Goes through the whole sermon. He's like, basically, that's my point. I want you to get to the end of the sermon where there's no part of you that goes, 
Yeah, but I still think it's unfair. No. He gets to destroy you. It's absolutely fine. If you are not right with God, you deserve nothing but hell. Do you get that? And the sinners in the hands of an angry God. He argues that, and I know I, I, I actually performed this sermon. I think it is performed. I performed this sermon 10 years ago. And uh, there's like a third of the people went, wow, I've never actually heard that. That was really interesting. And two-thirds said, don't ever do that again. So and that's even, I even trimmed it for time and content a little bit. And still people are like, oh, I didn't like that at all. But i got to read at least some of this. The God who holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over a fire, abhors you. God hates you. You understand this, right? He abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to see what uh, what what you have... Uh, than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. This that you have heard is the case of every one of you that are out of Christ. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone, is extended abroad under you. There's the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide, gaping mouth open, and you have nothing to stand upon, nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up, and your wickedness makes you as if, as it were, heavy as lead. You're standing on nothing but air, and you are heavy as lead, and tend downward with great weight and pressure toward hell. You are racing toward it. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless pit, the gulf. So let every one of you that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. I'm not just talking about those sinners out there. I mean, you guys. You guys, you're the ones dangling over hell. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Flee for your lives. Don't look back. Flee to the mountains, or you will be consumed. That's how he ended the sermon. That's, that's the end of it. People were screaming and crying and groaning in the aisles. Not because he raised his voice, not because he pounded the pulpit, but because he's just like, you, you do understand. Let me paint a mental picture. God hates you. He wants you to burn in hell. You're desperate to go there. He's barely holding on to you. If he lets go, you're done. Unless you're in a relationship with him. So do you think you want a relationship with God? Yeah, this is extremely effective. People are coming to know the Lord in droves. 1741, there's another pastor named George Whitfield, sometimes spelled with the E, sometimes not, that joined the revival preaching throughout England and the colonies. Whitfield had a slightly different take. It wasn't quite so intense. <laughs> Nobody's as intense as Jonathan Edwards. Nobody. So Whitfield became a Christian while he was at Oxford, where he studied and worked alongside the Wesley brothers, John Wesley and Charles Wesley. So you can always remember skinny-faced preacher John, round-faced hymn writer Charles. Okay? So 
get to know the Wesley brothers, they get to work together, they, t- they, they founded something that they called the Holy Club. And they said, you know, kind of like the Pietists, we need to make sure that we, we discipline ourselves to actually live this out. We need to work on how we live. We need to, to live it out on a regular daily basis. So much so, that critics said, you guys are just focused on spiritual disciplines. Instead of having just correct doctrine and just doing what you're supposed to do, you seem to think it's all about the stuff that you do, about having godly habits, about having regiments. In fact, you guys are all about methods. So you're Methodists. Overemphasized and trying to live out these sanctifying lives. You're trying to live out a life as if life were holy. Just do what you're supposed to do. Go to church. Put your money in the plate. What's your problem? John goes, totally taking that. Fine, we're Methodists. That, you're right. If, if you're saying, you guys are totally focused on doing the right thing, he's like, okay, we're going to call ourselves the doing the right thing people. You, you say this as an attack, I'm using that as the label of our movement. Fine, we're Methodists. That's, John was like the classic quintessential organizer of things. He's just like, okay, I'm running with that. PR, spin, ours. They begin to disagree uh, because John is drifting Arminian, and George is drifting Calvinist. And so they disagree over things like predestination. And eventually, Whitfield says, fine, you take the Methodists. I'm going to go preach over in the New World. I'm going to go to other places and preach a good Calvinist Methodism, which is why the Wesleyan movement tends to be more Arminian in how it's looking at different things. But he travels between America and England 13 times. When you realize that that's kind of an important, big, intensive jaunt, that's, a, that's saying something, you know, that, that, he's, that he's doing this. He covered more distance in the colonies than any white man up to that point ever had. He went from the very top to the very bottom of the colonies and all over the place. By the time he was done, he'd reached 80% of the colonial population with the gospel. 80% of the people living in the colonies had heard George Whitfield preach at a time when there was no social media, no internet, no TV. They just physically were there and heard him. That's impressive, isn't it? You can see, <coughs> it's, it's almost impossible to overestimate how important George Whitfield was for the, for the spiritual growth of our nation. If 80% of the people are like, yes, I've heard that guy. He even impressed a middle-aged deist named Ben Franklin, who was a printer. And Franklin, who, like I said, a deist, not a Christian. He reprinted Whitfield's sermons in the Pennsylvania Gazette each week. This is like, oh, people got to hear this. Yeah, booyah. That's totally a booyah kind of thing. So, much like Chrysostom and Augustine, if you remember when they talked about this kind of stuff, they said, you know, it's a sin to make the gospel boring. These new preachers, they, were, they tended to call them new lights, as opposed to the old lights who were just boring. New lights. The new light preachers infused humor and emotionalism emotion. Maybe not emotionalism. It wasn't based on emotion, but it had emotion in it. So it wasn't just truth, but it's engaging truth that they're preaching to people. And it makes a difference in people. Thousands came to know the Lord, including a bunch of slaves. For the first time, somebody actually was reaching out to the slaves. The Moravians are reaching out to them. Now Whitfield and the Methodists are reaching out to them. Up to this point, people are like, yeah, we don't. I mean, they're subhuman. Because there's a lot of that going around at this time, right? They're not us, therefore they're not even human. Where but, are, are, are reaching out in the new world? Yeah, 
They were going with, they were going with the slave ships into the New World now to preach. And then you got this wave of revival even amongst the slave populations. And so you have this deep, spiritually solid basis. Not always doctrinally solid, because they don't have access to Bibles and things like that, but this incredibly intense spiritualism that pervades the South in particular, and, and, and slavery in the New World. John and Edwards even ministered alongside his slave, a woman named Venus. They made it a point to, to reach out to Native Americans and other groups. But his own church eventually said, you know what, you're, you're getting kooky. He starts imposing his own personal views of morality on members of his congregation. He's like, if you do stuff I personally don't like, then you don't get to take communion. You don't get to be a member. I'm going to kick you out. I'm going to say, you're probably going to, probably were never a Christian in the first place. You never had an understanding of what it means. I mean, you play cards, therefore you're going to burn in hell. His own congregation is like, nope, we're voting you out. Well, yes, a little bit of both. In fact, eventually that's all he did. Before they officially voted him out, he wasn't even allowed to preach in his own pulpit. He's still technically the, the, the pastor. They're like, you just don't get to come to the church on Sundays anymore. Jonathan Edwards, the quintessential Great Awakening preacher, was not allowed to preach. Because they said, you've lost it. You've gone over the, over the bend. And I hate to say it, he wasn't the first one to do that, and he wasn't the last one to do that. There are some amazing people that have done amazing things, and you go, right, but if that's what you... That's how you define yourself, then quickly that's all that you are, and you've got to keep beating that drum. And you spend a decade or two telling people that if they're wrong, they're going to burn in hell. Eventually, you start getting ideas, personal ideas, as to what constitutes wrong and why that person go to hell and why this one. There's a really great apologist that I have tremendous respect for, loved in college, who is who nowadays who was awesome in talking to other non-Christians about why. Christianity makes sense, and not having faith doesn't. And then he made a ministry of turning that inward toward the church and all the things that the church is doing wrong. Now that's his ministry, what everybody other than his group is wrong. He's going, but you were so good. You were so good when you were doing this with the right heart. Oh, Edwards died in 1758. He wanted to, to show how important it was to get smallpox inoculations. And so he had a prototype smallpox inoculation, and he died from smallpox. Which, by the way, didn't help the smallpox inoculation movement. Whitfield died in 1770, was buried beneath the pulpit that he had for 21 years or something like that um, in Massachusetts. His church family loved him, and they, they, they're like, we always want Whitfield in the pulpit. Which is actually a little creepy, but really sweet gesture when you think about it. It's like... Um, no, because that would put me squarely in the fellowship hall. So. <laughs> what's, uh, what's that? Well, that, that's our pastor from about a decade ago. <laughs> by Whitfield's request, the funeral sermon was preached by John Wesley. And there was, an, uh, uh, yes, and there was an elegy that was written by Charles Wesley, and Whitfield said, I want them here because they're my very dear old friends. He'd go, you guys bitterly fell out over this Calvinist Arminian thing decades before, and Whitfield's like, yes, but they're my friends, and I love them. Wesley ended his sermon with this prayer, let the fire of thy love fall on every heart, and because we love thee, let us love one another with a love stronger than death, 
Take away from us all anger and wrath and bitterness, all clamor and evil speaking. Let thy spirit so rest upon us that from this hour we may be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. Yeah? The PBS show on Appalachia oh, yeah. mentioned that the Calvinists didn't spread much. Baptists and the Methodists, was the, the Calvinists, you had to have more to be qualified to. You needed to be uh, where the other is, uh, certain writers and that, they just took off. And, mm -hmm. At the one time, there were 40 brands of Baptisms, Baptist churches in Well, I think there's something like 200 different Baptist churches yeah. worldwide now. So it does, but yes, because everybody tends to think, oh, we're doing it right. And again, understand the rationale here. If you genuinely think that people's wrong thinking is dangerous, then, <laughs> then being Jonathan Edwards and saying, I want to control right thinking, makes sense. Conversely, if you genuinely think that the circuit writer writing in going, you should love Jesus, here, let me throw a tract at you, now i got to go to another place, isn't maybe necessarily helping. I can see why they're like, no, we want to separate from you. But you can also see why the circuit writer might make more converts and more churches. Of course, the circuit writing Arminian uh, Methodist will sit there and go, you guys are so focused on the, the tiny little wicket that you think you need to go through to be, to be perfect, and you're missing the opportunity to just share the love of Christ with people. I, I, I'm not going to take sides on this. You're right. There's there, and, and I know that's not what you think. But there's 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 all these these uh, in general uh, Calvinist, Methodist, and Baptist churches that are kind of insular and much more open Arminian things. But that that doesn't mean that the Calvinists are necessarily wrong, or that the Arminians are necessarily right, or vice versa. It's just different perspectives on it, and they probably should work together a little bit more, which is why I find this such a sweet image, that, that John's like, you know what, whatever came before us, let's, let's focus on this, that we have the right heart with all of this, and that, and that we, and we love one another well. Between the two of them, Whitfield and Wesley reached 18 million people with the gospel, at a time, again, with no internet, no radios, no nothing. That's, that's a powerful ministry. They cited one town that was normally 5,000 to 25,000, but they were listing uh, 10 meetings. Exactly. Well, and, and we'll find that even more so a little bit later on. No, I'm not going to go there. Yes, we'll find that even more so a little bit later on. But yes, these, these just a massive influx of, of Christians taking this seriously. But there's also this, this Great Awakening created uh, an influx in, in new learning and higher education. Um, New Line Presbyterians founded the College of New Jersey. Anybody familiar with the College of New Jersey? College of New Jersey in 1746 to help train pastors and church leaders and missionaries. Then it moved to Princeton, which is why you call it Princeton University today. But it was started because they wanted to train pastors. Now New York said, well, we'd like to train Anglican preachers. We're not Presbyterians, but we want our own college. So they got a king's charter from George II, and they started King's College. Then he had a revolutionary war, and calling it King's College is a little tacky. So what do you call it? You know, well, tell you what, we're going to use an old-fashioned name for the continent of America. Anybody know, you look at other, what's another name for America? Columbus Land, what do you call it? Columbia University. That's where this comes from. Again, let's train pastors and missionaries. Same year, a Puritan minister named Eleazar Huila started a school in Connecticut. He's like, 
I'd like to reach out to Native Americans who want to be missionaries to their own people or to other tribes. So they called it Moore's Charity School, and it had one student in 1754. But eventually they got enough money to move to New Hampshire and name it Dartmouth College. Started as a Native American missionary school. The Baptists say, can we do something not quite so sectarian? I mean, you got, you got this Presbyterian place, you got this Anglican place. We want a Baptist college, but one that's a little bit more open-minded. So we go to Rhode Island, which is like the poster child of open-minded, right? So they created the College in the English Colony of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. That's the name of it. An appreciation for the generous donation of Nicholas Brown, that ended up getting renamed Brown University. Again, started as a place to, to, to train Baptist preachers. For decades, Fredrickhausen had been preaching all around and had wanted Dutch Reformed pastors to have their own school in New Jersey. He's like, yeah, we need to train them too. So in 1766, they got a, 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 they got a, a charter from uh, the, the king again in New Brunswick, named after the queen, because there's already a king's college. So they named it after the queen, Queen Charlotte. But after the War of 1812, that was considered tacky, to call it Queen's College. And so there's a war hero and generous donor named Henry Rutgers, so you call it Rutgers University. My point in all of this is to say all these schools, much like Yale, much like Harvard, were started specifically to train pastors and missionaries. That's what they're there for. When you think of Dartmouth and Harvard and Yale and Princeton, that's what you think of, right? Bastions of Christianity. No, not necessarily. But holy schools were the direct result of the Great Awakening in America, of, of, of this sense of we really need to focus on doing this right and living this out. This is at the same time that Enlightenment Europe is trying to actively phase that stuff out of their universities. Because they're going, wow, Christianity is, is contrary to rationality. Obviously, we can just chuck all that, right? That's what Europe is saying. And at the same time, then America's going, wait, no, the opposite of that. 1738, David Hume wrote his treatise on human nature. Anybody ever hear of David Hume? Okay, at least something. Born to a Scottish family, he attended the University of Edinburgh at the age of 12. So another one of these really bright kids. And he, he realized, you know, I'm studying law, but what I really want to be is a philosopher. So I find myself reading a lot of, well, Roman philosophy and things. That's what I want. So at the age of 28, he wrote a treatise on human nature. And he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do an, an, an empirical study of human psychology, morality. Why do we do what we do? I want to understand why people act the way they act. He's like, I know that religion is ridiculous. In fact, he called it specifically an absurdity. Anybody who would believe that there's a God out there must be nuts. You must be foolish. So, if you should, as he said, you should never believe in absurdity. You should never assent to it under any circumstances. Why do people have a sense of morality if there's no God out there to give them a sense of morality? What is morality? Because it's not from God, because there is no God. So what is it? So he broke his, his book down into sections. He talked about general understanding of how things work. How do we even understand anything? He talked about the passions and how we're a passionate creature. And then he talked about morality itself. And he says, okay, it makes no sense to base morality on logic and rationality alone. 
since there's nothing essentially moral or immoral about any action or thing in and of itself. It's just a chair. It's just walking down the street. There's nothing moral or immoral about it. Locke, half a century earlier, had said, you, you do realize that morality isn't innate in things. It's a secondary idea about things. We only see the ball is round because we, we have this concept of roundness, and so we put it in the roundness box. Locke was a strong Christian, and he said, that's why you shouldn't look at a human being and say, well, white people are better than black people, men are better than women. What with me having decided that already? It's like, okay, there's nothing essential about color of skin or gender that makes somebody better than somebody else. This is all just going on in your brain. Hume took that a step further and said, okay, then morality is and should be based just on how you feel about an issue rather than what you judge rationally about an issue. No, it's a step forward. This is enlightenment. What, how did you get confused by that? No, this is him saying, no. His philosophy evolved. Exactly. His philosophy has evolved, saying, no, there's rationality that we can apply toward this, but you can't judge one another. You can't say, my morality is better than your morality, because all this is just secondary thought anyway. This is just, we should all just do what we do. You can't judge one another with regard to morality. That's absurd. If I think something is good, then it's good. The passions are what they are. You can't, they are not in agreement or in disagreement with rationality. They have nothing to do with it. Very early expression of the heart wants what the heart wants, right? It's just what it is. Just deal with it. He did say, well, there are various socially held virtues. There are natural virtues that stem from our instinctive desire to avoid pain or seek out pleasure. There are things that we need to do so that we don't kill each other. Those are things that you should encourage one another to do. Just live like a good person within what society sees at any given moment as a virtue. But stop judging one another. You can't judge one another in terms of morality, but you can exhort and, and, and encourage one another to follow the natural and societally held virtues at a given time. Yeah, I was going to say, do you see a foundation of what we tend to think of now? We live in a society that says, oh, we can totally judge one another based on whether or not you do what we as a society says is the right thing to do. But you can't judge me as immoral just because I don't follow what you think is morality. That's, that's human. It's David Hume in a nutshell, isn't it? 1748, he re-edits his book because he's like, yeah, man, I wrote that when I was 28. and <clears throat> really needs some smoothing out. So now that I'm 38, Re-edits my book for a broader audience, titling it An Enquiry Concerning Human Understanding, and it took off. Everybody's reading this thing. It's all over the place. Among the, the various smaller tweaks and edits, little itty-bitty things, he also added a chapter on why no one should believe something as absurd as a miracle. Those are ridiculous. They don't exist. Miracles can be defined as phenomena that are, quote, contrary to uniform experience in the course of nature, unquote because that's what a miracle is. If it followed what we all see as normal, natural processes, we wouldn't call it a miracle, right? That makes sense. It's a good definition. Given this definition, then, either a given miracle never happened, because religion is focused on fantasy, not reality, or if it did happen, then it's improperly labeled. Because if something actually did happen in the real world, then it just becomes part of the record of the course of experience of nature, then, right? If a miracle actually did happen in the natural world, then it's apparently something that can happen in the natural world. If it happens in the natural world, apparently it's something that can happen in the natural world, right? 
And if it can be something that can happen in the natural world, then it can't be a miracle because we just define miracles as stuff that doesn't happen in the natural world. Y'all nodded when I said that's a good definition. That's a horrible definition. Yeah. As a biology teacher, it would be safe. Really? Well, human. Uh, this sounds like a really good definition. And this is a horrible definition. By the way, never trust a philosopher that says, how's this for a definition? You should always go, let me think about that first. Because all arguments, really, we don't usually think about it this way, but almost all arguments really are, are won and lost on definitions. So stop and think about the definitions. And you can't even say, well, Bucky saw the miracle happen. He saw it. Because he's like, well, you can't trust testimony. People are so easily biased, they're confused, they're inaccurate, they're even willfully deceptive. Even the other night when, when uh, Sarah asked everybody to define something, to describe something that just happened, everybody did an okay job, but one of the people screwed up a detail. And they were trying. They were trying to do it correctly. So he says, you can't trust testimony. You can only trust logic. Logic should always trump testimony. If, if somebody gives testimony that you know, you can logically demonstrate is totally bogus, then you should assume it's totally bogus. Possibly. He even argued, he's like, you can't even prove causation. You can't prove that one thing caused another. Just because every time you've dropped a pencil, a thousand times you've dropped a pencil, and a thousand times it drops to the floor, you can't prove that that thousand and first time it's going to do that. It probably will. You can prove probability, but you can't prove causation. You can't prove that something is automatically going to happen, or you can't ever prove what made that happen. You can make some really good guesses, but you never really know. You never know. So, people are like, this is awesome. This is, this is, this is so smart, I don't even understand it. This is awesome. It's like that movie that everybody watches and goes, yeah, it's so deep. And you go, no, it's, it's unintelligible. It's stupid. <laughs> oh, I totally see the clothes. Oh, yeah. Boonwell, he's a genius. He's weird. He's a genius. And weird. Anyway. So, game set and match the Hume. Everybody agrees with Hume. Hume makes total sense. Religion is bogus. Until 1762, when George Campbell comes around. What? You chuckling at poor George Campbell? Yeah. Don't do that. He's a happy guy. Scottish Presbyterian minister, born in Aberdeen. And if you haven't noticed, Scotland is kind of tossing out all the philosophers right now. There's tons of philosophers coming out of Scotland. Hume and, and, and Campbell. The most prominent of these kinds of thinkers were the common sense realists, like Tom and, Thomas Reed. Hume says, you can't even prove causation. We don't know anything. Descartes says, you don't know anything through sensory experience. We know nothing. The common sense realists go, oh, that's, you're, that's goofy. You're just thinking about this too hard. As Reed wrote, if there are certain principles, as I think there are, which the constitution of our nature leads us to believe, and, and which we're under a necessity to take for granted in the common concerns of life, without being able to give a reason for them, even the stuff we don't understand, we can go, well, but I know at least this much. These are what we can call the principles of common sense. And what is manifestly contrary to them, well, that's what we call absurd. There's some stuff that you go, I, I don't even know if I know why, but I think that's goofy. In other words, there are some philosophical questions that only professional philosophers will ask. Why is there error? Well, you need to breathe. Yes, but why? To pump up basketballs. I don't know. What are you, what are you getting at? No, but the why. Oh, stop it. There's error because we wouldn't breathe without the air. The rest of us just go, yeah, whatever. So, 
Campbell is a Scottish Presbyterian minister of Aberdeen, common sense realist who taught logic and was the principal at Marischal College. And he saw so many problems with Hume's logic, and it bugged him that so many people didn't see the problems with Hume's logic, that he wrote a book, a dissertation on miracles in response to Hume. It's, it's the, the only modern thing I can think of is the evangelical backlash that so many people had read uh, the, uh, the Da Vinci Code, and everybody was like, uh, or everybody's like, oh man, history is different than I thought. <laughs> no, no, this is bad history. Ah, this. Did you know the Catholic Church are aliens? Would you stop it? <laughs> you do not trust this book. Why are you being sucked in? So he took umbrage to Hume's self-serving definition of a miracle. It's like, okay, no. Let's define miracle as simply an uncommon fact, uh, an idiosyncratic moment that where it appears that God has stepped in to affect reality. This is not usual. And it seems to be, because of whatever context it's in, that God is the one actually behind this. It's not just odd, it's odd with a purpose. So a miracle doesn't require that natural laws be broken. There are times where I feel like I really should call somebody at that moment. For some, Even the other day, I felt like I should call Megan. And I called her and she's like, I just got off the phone. And it was kind of a, a, a big emotional thing. I really appreciate the phone call. I really felt prompted by God to do that. Does that break a natural law? Is that nothing we've ever seen in the natural course of experience? No. But it does suggest if I felt like God was laying this on my heart, and I called and she goes, amazing that you would call right now. I that could go for years without hearing her. She would give me a phone call at the moment I was really low. It's like there's a, it's like there's a spiritual gift of that. A special bracket of discernment. But it doesn't require that you broke a natural law. It's still a miracle, though. And it doesn't require, if they were broken, it doesn't mean you have to rewrite the laws. Just because Jesus rose from the dead, it doesn't mean, well, that's apparently what's going to happen now. Well, dead people came out of the tombs. No, apparently nobody sticks, stays in tombs anymore. No, 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 no. It doesn't rewrite natural laws. We don't have to do it like that. Hume's got the wrong definition. And what if a stranger warned you that the bridge was out up ahead on the road? If, if you were driving and a stranger goes, whoa, 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 don't go that way. The bridge is out. You're going to have to turn around. What would you do? So you'd keep on driving. Pretty <laughs> slow. How do you know his testimony is correct? I mean, is it logical? Are you going to trust your life on that? You know, I think typically people would. No, no, I'm not saying. Okay. Conversation. Conversation for conversation for after Sunday school, apparently. <laughs> Campbell said, okay, you wouldn't just assume that he's lying. You may or may not want to check it out, but you wouldn't just go, no, because the bridge has never been out before, so he must be lying. It's like, well, he, he's saying, no, no, if you try to go down there, you're going to slide down, and then you're going to fall into the gully. Seriously, it's dangerous to go past this point. I'm going to have to go back and put up a sign. You know, it's like, he's lying. Well, why would he lie? He's got no reason to lie. Why would you lie? Or would you assume he's probably telling the truth? Apparently, apparently, there's a, there's a corner of the room that goes, I'd still check it out, even at, even at risk of my life. I would have to know. That's why you have a phone. Just, you know, check out. Anyway, he says, you would probably, there's no reason to doubt the testimony. Even if you had to check it out. There's no reason for you to say, he must be lying. Even if I don't know him, even if it goes contrary to my personal experience, 
I would at least consider that he might be telling the truth. I wouldn't automatically doubt it. And how would you even know that something is against the, quote, uniform experience, unquote, of humanity? How do you know? How do you know this isn't what happens in Jamaica all the time? How do you know it's not something that happens in China all the time? How do you know? I, I would say I have a miracle. The time I wiggle a wire here, eight foot away, the door unlocks. There you go. It, it, anything you don't understand could even be seen as a miracle or anything that's, like that. That's but, what I was saying with But I'm going to ask this question again. How do you even know that this is what happens in Jamaica, or this is what happens in China? Okay, they can just mouth, you don't. How do you trust that you might? How do you, how, how many of you have been to Irian Jaya personally? Besides us, I went there one time on a vacation. The rest of you, I'll show you a picture sometime. How do we know what people do in the Iran Jaya then? Pardon me? How do you know what Exactly. But how do you know? How do we know any I, I really really didn't expect to have to ask this question this many times. How do you know that something is like the way you think it is somewhere else? My brother was there. My brother was there! I heard testimony! I had to trust that somebody somewhere told me about it. So Hume, your argument doesn't work. Well, if it's not if it's contrary to what everybody around the world says, I don't care, because you can't trust testimony. If it's contrary to what everybody in the world or around the world says, then obviously it's bogus. Yeah. What everybody around the world says, that's testimony! Duh! How do you people read this and not see this? That's poor, that's me doing. Pretend that's Scottish. Anyway, so we attack Hume's dismissal of testimony. He's like, no, no, you shouldn't automatically accept all testimony that every witness ever gives. Granted. There are going to be people that lie. There are going to be people that are confused. There are going to be people that are inaccurate. Fine. But if there are multiple, independent, unbiased, corroborating testimonies, the logic would dictate you consider them as trustworthy. Right? If there's a big sign from IDOT saying the bridge is out, if you just got finished talking to somebody that goes, by the way, I tried to come over this bridge earlier this morning. I couldn't do it. A stranger drives up to you and goes, you probably ought to turn around, the bridge is out. There's a cop there going, turn around, the bridge is out. It is actually irrational to assume that the bridge is not out, isn't it? And so, and so Campbell here says, I, I get what you're saying, but there comes a point when you're, well, it's just irrational to trust the, the testimony if the bridge has never been out before. You know? But if you have multiple, independent, unbiased, corroborating testimonies, you probably ought to believe them. It doesn't automatically mean that they're right, but they probably are. Logic would dictate, right? The only reason not to trust them is if you have a compelling reason to doubt them. Like they're all wearing the same t-shirt that says, we waylay people who turn around and don't go over the bridge. You know, and, and this, We're part of this band of, of, of street thugs that just waits for you to stop your car so you can turn around so they go, ah! some sort of conspiracy, there's no good reason not to trust them 
if there is no compelling reason for all of them to be lying. And it's not just a compelling reason why some people are wrong. You go, no, no. If you have multiple corroborating testimonies, they all have to be lying. Lying to you. Or all in error. Or all duped. If you don't have a good reason to believe that all of them are in error, why would you disagree? Why would you automatically assume this? The only reason to doubt all of the various testimonies about miracles is if we began our investigation into it with the presupposition that miracles must be false. If a whole bunch of people, independently, all attested to God-working miracles all over the place, that would at least suggest logically that maybe God works miracles. Unless you just assume that all of them are all wrong. And the only way that all of them can all be wrong, because there isn't just a conspiracy, this isn't just one cabal of people. The only reason to believe that all of them are wrong is if you go, well, because I've already decided that miracles are crud. It never happened. Right? Like we talked about with the parting of the Red Sea the other week. The only reason, if you look at all the data in Scripture, the only reason to doubt that God parted the Red Sea is if you start with the presupposition that, well, of course, God didn't part the Red Sea. So let's figure this out. And Campbell says, whatever else you want to say about that, that's bad logic. If you start with a presupposition like that and then say, let's find truth, you know, well, you're not going to. You might accidentally stumble on something that approximates truth, but you're not going to find truth because you already started with a presupposition. So you need to back way off and start thinking logically. What sounds like you're being logical is you being illogical. I like George Campbell. Therefore, I should comment, though, as a side comment. In responding to Hume's theological arguments against miracles, classic church history, church history stuff, George Campbell actually helped British law, and thus American law, define the rules of how to use and how to evaluate expert and personal testimony in cases of, of, of like legal cases. Before this, it was either if a rich guy said you were guilty, you must be guilty, or you can't trust testimony because testimony is totally invalid, so the judge should just go shoot from the hip. Or Campbell actually says, let's stop and logically break down what kind of testimony you use, what kind of testimony you trust, how do you test it, etc. And everybody went, you do realize that that has cross-pocket applications. We can use this over here in law. Change the legal system because of his arguments against you. Kind of like later on, another common sense realist named Richard Waitley would define something he called presumption of innocence. You know, if somebody is accused of a crime, you're moving them from the status quo of being presumed innocent. Because right now, I, I assume Anna's innocent of crimes. There's no reason for me to believe that she isn't. If Cliff comes and says Anna is, is guilty, before I change my opinion of the status quo, I don't have a compelling reason to do that. She has a presumption that she is innocent until we, or Cliff, proves that she is guilty. So the burden of proof is on the prosecution, not on the defense. Again, changes the perception of the legal system. Fundamentally changed what we see in a court case. So everybody say, thank you, Scotland, for fixing the legal system, right? Because yeah. Thank you, Scotland. All these Scottish common sense realists going, you know, we ought to rethink this a little bit. Hume refused ever to directly refer to or comment on any arguments. What's interesting is, yeah, which is nice. I can say whatever I want, I never comment if anybody disagrees. But he wrote a series of letters to friends and different intros to different editions where he kept commenting about Campbell. 
and then Campbell would write a new edition of Dissertation of Miracles that quoted Hume and responded to that. So even though they never directly discussed it, they had this ongoing indirect literary debate over this stuff. Privately to his friends, he confessed that the only one who had ever beaten him philosophically was, quote, that Scotch theologue, George Campbell. Which I find interesting. He's just like, no, no, nobody ever beat me. Nobody ever beat me. I never just wanted it. Man, I can't beat this guy. Every time I open my mouth, the guy thinks. This is David sticking Hume. This is like the guy that everybody thinks is the most brilliant guy. In fact, on his deathbed in 1776, Hume was reading Campbell's Philosophy of Rhetoric. In fact, that's the one book you want to make sure that you've read before he died. Nothing but respect for Campbell. Died reading his book. It's an interesting time in history. Of course, in the next year, 1739, England fought the War of Jenkins' Ear. That's where we'll pick it up next week. But tell me, in your own quick synopsis, what would you say is a theme of what we're seeing here in these couple of ten years that we're looking at here? Okay, the ways that things changed everything. A different... Good, I don't know where you came up with that, but that's brilliant. What else? Think about Jonathan Swift. Think about the Great Awakening. Think about Treatise on Human Nature. thinking that says, we need to make sense. We need to use your God-given brain. Which, of course, means religion is ridiculous. But then you have Swift and Edwards and Campbell going, no, 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 no. Use your God-given brain to direct you toward godly things. If we use our God-given brains, if you really think about it, it draws you toward understanding things from a deeper, more Christian understanding of stuff. Your intellectual understanding of this, wrapped with a genuine relationship with God, those two things together, that's what makes you a solid Christian. And so you have this movement toward Methodism, pietism. Let's live this out-ism. Wrapped in, use your brain while you do it-ism. Right? This is a powerful time in history, but you can see you've got this big chafing point between the intellectuals who say religion is bad, and yet intelligent people saying no. Religion is good. It's not intellectuals versus non-intellectuals. It's intelligence versus intelligence. But what are you basing on? Something important to think about as we look at today's world. Use your God-given brain. Use it in the right context. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that you have always been not only a wise God and a good God and loving God, but you've always been the smart play. You've always been the smart response. You've always been the smart conclusion. Help us, Lord, to engage our minds and our hearts. Help us to place you first and foremost, not just in our feelings, but in our minds. Not just in our thinking, but in our relationship. Pray, Lord, help us to love you well and to live that out toward all those around us. 
to a world that thinks that humanism is the be-all, end-all of being intellectual and being moral. I give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.